The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital. This budget thing is going to do nothing. Space Force, I still think it's interesting. President Trump not playing his cards yet. Headlines, policy, and politics colliding. Bloomberg, sound on. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. I would rather see a congressional solution. It's part of my DNA. The Senate map in 2020 looks a lot different than it looked in 2018. President Trump was sent here to smash conventional norms. In a sense, Bernie Sanders has already won. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. Lots to get through. We had a little technical difficulties at the start of the show, so apologize if that sounded a little funky. Uh, joining us in New York is uh, Max. Max Burns is with us in New York. Max, uh, Democratic strategist, contributor at The Daily Beast and The Independent. Great to have you with us, Max. Thank you. And just walked in the studio, just casually strolled on in. Scott Trainer, CEO of Optimus and former data science director for Marco Rubio for president. Guys, I got to be honest. I literally just got back from Reagan International Airport from uh, Boston. I guess with the – aren't you a Boston sports fan? I, I am not. I'm a Chicago sports fan. Oh, okay. Fan, I yeah. don't know where I got that from. Yeah. Maybe it's like you look like you're from Boston. <laughs> I don't I know. know. But anyway, so I'm a little disheveled, so we're going to get back in the zone. Max, give me your three big takeaways from the New Hampshire primary because there's so much information, and number one – Better be about Bernie Sanders, because I don't think he's getting the play he deserves after after winning the Granite State. Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Bernie Sanders with 25, 26% in a five-way race is incredible. Uh, second big one, I think, would be the fact that there is no clear successor to Joe Biden in the moderate centrist wing of the party. There's a big fight now between Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar for that space. And the third is that we're going to be in this for the long haul. Uh, the way this is shaping up, especially going into Nevada, South Carolina, uh, there is not going to be a clear-cut leader here. You know, I think that's a great point. You know, I was really struck at the Bernie rally, Scott Tranter. Uh, I was there last night. And his supporters, it's a much more diverse coalition, at least in the crowd, then I think we are catching on to. And I said this to Tom Keene earlier today on Bloomberg Radio, as well as on Bloomberg Television, which was we might be missing the moment. For the first time in at least our generation's history, we could have a true populist election. It's certainly possible. Also, he had the Strokes last night who are quite popular and you know, yeah. free concert and all that kind of stuff. Look, Bernie <laughs> says exactly what the people want. And so lots of people like that. I mean, that's what a populist is. He gets most of the people out there. It'll be interesting to see what happens in the Super Tuesday states, though, especially with Mike Bloomberg spending all that yeah. money. And to echo what Max said, I'm the math guy. So we have our own model. We just released it. about You and another. Andrew Yang. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, he uh, he, he had to drop off to New Hampshire. But and what might I, run for mayor, but anyway. He, Anyway, he should story. run for something, but what to echo what Max said, our model says 49% chance of a convention where there is no clear delegate winner after last night, and that is... 49% chance? 49% chance. Okay, of what happening? Of a convention happening with no clear delegate leader. 
In other words, no one the Democrats the Democratic candidates go to convention okay. with no majority. De- but that delegates. happened with Hillary Clinton, right? Technically, uh, no, she had with the super delegates with the, with yeah. the super delegates, yeah. which are Democrats, not a thing this year. I think the last time that anyone really had without having to do whatever delegate math was with John Kerry. That was years ago. Correct. So Democrats have this history. You, Max, you guys have this history of of really kind of having these types of of conventions that technically no one really has enough to qualify, but ultimately people assume are just going to get them. I remember Hillary Clinton had to release her delegates or something. But I don't know. I I, I don't buy that, and I'm going to push back and, sure. uh, against this because. And Max, I'm curious for your point. You know, you've got the Bloomberg question hanging out there. And just as a disclaimer, and we're going to talk about it openly this block, Michael Bloomberg is the founder and majority owner of Bloomberg News, the parent company of Bloomberg LP. And um, and so and the majority owner of Bloomberg LP, the parent company of Bloomberg Radio. So, Max, from, from your perspective, though, he hasn't competed. Uh, Iowa, he wasn't there. New Hampshire, he wasn't there. And he's, he's banking everything, literally banking everything on Super Tuesday. But, I mean, Buttigieg, Klobuchar, Biden, there are a lot of different alternatives, and he hasn't had to be on a debate stage yet. So where does the Bloomberg question fit into that? That is an open question. I think when you're competing in so many states at once just on the basis of ads, uh, that really tests the theory that you can sort of purchase your way into visibility. And there's evidence in South Carolina that that's actually effective. We've seen Tom Steyer is now in second place just from spending boatloads of cash in the South Carolina media market. But it's going to be challenging if Mike Bloomberg isn't on a debate stage to make the case that he's really a viable candidate. And there are Democrats, both in the moderate wing and on the left, that are justifiably skeptical of his credentials as a Democrat. And that's going to hurt him if he can't contest those in front of a national media audience. And just as a note to stop and frisk, questions about his support for that and which he has since apologized for also resurfacing in the last day or so let's take a listen to bernie sanders last night in manchester new hampshire after winning the new hampshire primary here he is this victory here is the beginning of the end for donald trump scott you know what i got from my time up in uh, patriots country uh i just heard from uh, my time up in patriots country uh was really how they are fully prepared to embrace the Democratic Socialist label. And when I talked to Jeff Weaver, a senior advisor to, yeah. to Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign, I said, I said, okay, you're calling yourselves a Democratic Socialist. You know President Trump is going to throw this in your face and they're going to say, you know, here it is. They're all socialists. And he said, well, we're going to call President Trump. You know what we're going to call him, Kev? I said, what? We're going to call him a corporate socialist. I mean, they can try. Um, Is all the polling I've seen? I'd be curious what Max has seen. Is Democratic Socialist does not play well among the likely voter electorate. Not not talking primary. The people are going to vote in November. These people skip primaries. They don't always come out. They come up for presidentials. They don't necessarily like the Democratic Socialist because they do align. Uh, they do think it's communist. Um, and I do know that you know the Trump campaign has spent a lot of money on polling on this, and they they've, they've crafted their messages the way they have. That's the the bet they're making. Now that's why they play the game. That's why we're going to see how this unfolds over the next six to eight months. But it looks like if that's the the position of the Sanders campaign, both sides are going to get exactly what they want, and they're going to go in thinking they got the right side, which you know makes the next six to nine months interesting. Matt- 
Max, do you shiver at the sight of the attack ads and the tweets that President Trump's going to have calling uh, whoever, whomever the nominee is a, a Democratic Socialist? I don't. And I think this is Why? sort Why of not? The, this is the trap that Republicans have sort of fallen into over the past couple of cycles is they have called every single Democrat a socialist and a communist to the point where when an actual Democratic socialist comes around, that has been muted so much. So you don't think it means as much? I don't. And we forget that most voters are not ideological. They're voting on actual policy issues and they're voting on things that affect them. So while there may be some concern about like a socialist boogeyman, uh, there's not a lot of evidence that that's hurt Bernie Sanders so far. All right. Let's talk about Amy. Amy had a big night last night. You know, Craig Gordon, our boss here, the, the bureau chief, he's always goes, why do you call them by their first names as if you know them? I said, I can't help it. I see their signs everywhere. Amy, Bernie, Hillary. I mean, it's they're all first name. You know who isn't? Trump. <laughs> <laughs> Amy Klobuchar had her, ta- uh, had her uh, task really set out for her because she had to get in third place. And you know who and did she it? got it. She got it. She didn't only get it. She doubled, basically, what yeah. Elizabeth Warren had. Here's Amy Klobuchar from last night. Take a listen. Trump's worst nightmare is that the people in the middle, the people who have had enough of the name-calling and the mud-slinging, yeah. have someone to vote for in November. So that's Senator Amy Klobuchar. Does she have what it takes to sustain herself, Scott Transer, Republican insider, against the <laughs> onslaught of criticism and, and time in the sun that's going to be headed her way? Well, I'm curious. She might not get the onslaught. I mean, we're too busy talking about Mike Bloomberg, Steyer, Buttigieg, Sanders, all of these different people before we get to Amy, and I'll call her by her first name, being a fellow Thank Minnesotan. You. But Oh, right. Uh, she's from your state. Yeah. But... Um, I think that's going to be helpful to her because no one expects her to win in Nevada. No one expects her to win in South Carolina. She seems to be operating her campaign pretty smartly, and she's not going to run out of money. So she's going to be able to go into Super Tuesday with middling expectations not to win anything. She'd come out with some delegates and maybe catch fire. But you have to win. This is what I don't understand, Max. Everyone says you don't have to win. Uh, you got to win. Eventually. But you got to put points on the board. It's not enough to make it to the big dance. You got to win if you want the trophy. Right, Max? The delegates are what matter. And this is great for Amy Klobuchar as a, a campaign for vice president, essentially. But she's just not polling anywhere that is strong enough to make her a competitor. I think she had an amazing debate. She came out great in New Hampshire. But it's it's telling that the media has really started to obsess over this Amy Klobuchar momentum, uh, over what has really been a fairly marginal bump for her numbers. And it'll be interesting to see once Nevada comes along and she doesn't come in the top four or five, uh, whether the media will still right. have that fascination with her. All right, coming up, I got much more to say about Amy Klobuchar's Clomentum, as they're calling it, uh, with Max Burns and Scott Transfer. Download the Bloomberg Sound on podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I made it back to D.C. Didn't think I was going to make it. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. 
these first two uh, states are very meaningful, but uh, he's right. The competition moves on now to different states, new states with uh, uh, different makeups, different experiences, and we will be competing, making sure that our message reaches every voter and earning that support, uh, especially mindful that we are moving into more racially diverse states. That was former South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg speaking earlier today after a strong showing in the New Hampshire primary. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Radio. I made it back to Washington, D.C. after having been in Iowa and uh, New Hampshire. And Max Burns is up there in New York, Democratic strategist, good friend of the program, contributor at the Daily Beast and the Independent. Scott Tranner is here with me in the studio. He's a Rubio World alum and the CEO of Optimus. Uh, a data guy, a, a data guy. You know, here's what I here's what we couldn't get to that that I I wanted to carry through into this block. Well, and, and it involves Buttigieg, it involves Klobuchar, and it really does involve Bernie, in the sense, Max, that folks like us, especially here in the Beltway, and this is my issue with the Beltway, folks like us, Max, we're talking about delegate counts and super delegates and conventions and everything, but. I'm going to keep saying this until the cows come home. It's not outside of Washington. How you win is by getting the most votes. Even if there's all of that other technical stuff, for lack of a better word, how you win is getting the most votes. And so if Bernie Sanders continues to perform strongly in caucuses and primaries and at the end of the day has more votes in these states, but it is, you know, dare I say, taken away from him. To his supporters, it will feel like the nomination was taken away from him. Am I wrong? And how do how does how does the Democratic Party prevent that from happening? Because Tom Perez has his work cut out for him if that's the case, Max. Well, it's a good thing that Bernie Sanders supporters are not prone to conspiracy theories about <laughs> the election being stolen. Max, oh my gosh, go ahead. But you make a good point, is if Thank he you. can show the popular support and this arcane delegate system where how well you perform doesn't necessarily correlate to how many delegates you get, and people are trying to explain this to voters who just see that the guy they support who came in first is somehow not the nominee, that's going to create the same kind of problem we had in 2016 with the Republican primary, which was this idea that the establishment was trying to deny Trump the nomination. And that, I think, gave him a lot of momentum. The resentment that voters feel at Bernie Sanders being excluded by any means necessary is a real driving force that's keeping him afloat. I, I just want to jump in. Look, Bernie Sanders got the most votes in Iowa, pending a recount, recanvas, and got the most votes in New Hampshire. But according to the University of Virginia Center for Politics and Decision Desk HQ, Pete Buttigieg has the most delegates. And at the end of the day, Tom Perez oversees the DNC, which writes the rules and says you got to have the most delegates. Well, I, I think that's a great point because, you know, I, I talked about how we might be missing the moment that Bernie Sanders has continued to drag the party to the left and, and has been attacked for not having an effect on democratic politics. I mean, that in and of itself is an effect. But we also had never heard of Pete Buttigieg until like last year. I mean, and here's a guy... And he lost. When he, lo when he lost. <laughs> when he no, lost. No, but, I'm, but yeah. I'm not saying it's a knock yeah. him. I'm saying it's a remarkable political ascendancy. Yeah. Yeah. Here's someone who does have a, a historic element to his candidacy as the first openly gay 
uh, presidential candidate. Here's someone who is a mayor of a of a smaller sized town in America who has now put up big numbers, huge numbers, Max Burns. And you write about this. Uh, well, you wrote about this about his ascendancy on the Daily Beast. But I mean, it, it, you know, for all the talk that there's that there's no coalition happening in the moderates. Well, moderate voters. In Iowa and in New Hampshire, both picked Pete. Yeah, and more to the point on that is that if you combine Biden and Klobuchar and Buttigieg together, it makes more than half of the vote in New Hampshire, which even though that's not how these primaries go, it's worth saying that that moderate wing is far from uh, knocked back by Bernie Sanders' sort of insurgent campaign. The challenge for Buttigieg is that, full stop, you cannot become the Democratic nominee without African-American and Latino support. And both Buttigieg and Klobuchar are really struggling there. But I have to jump in here because this whole issue, first of all, we haven't had an election with African-American, with predominant election with with African-Americans. But here's my issue with this notion. Former Vice President Joe Biden, when he launched his candidacy, and correct me if I'm wrong, either of you, he said that he was the the pre- he was going to be the candidate who was going to be able to win back white working class voters from President Donald Trump's political coalition, the swing voters that voted for Obama and then voted for Trump. Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan. exactly. So that was if, if if I'm if unless I'm wrong, a couple of months ago, that was why ever why he that was his whole pitch. Well, you just had a caucus in Iowa. You just had a primary. In New Hampshire, and and you and you lost significantly, and so now he's saying, "Well, I'm the only candidate who can get African American support." And I I don't know. It, it's something. I, I see you, Scott, but I, I'm asking you to come in here. That just it feels like Monday morning quarterback. Yeah, he's grasping at straws. He's got to have something to win. His campaign's running out of money. He's moving. He's moving TV ads back and forth. He's telling everyone he's got to do um, South Carolina. The biggest telling thing to me was he video conferenced into yeah, his was, New Hampshire. Were, voters were mad about that. Yeah, like you, you just can't do that. Now, that might be a smart strategic thing if you can win South Carolina, but even that's going to be interesting. I'm not counting him out, but I just want to – I think this point is worth making again. When he announced his candidacy, it was he was going to be able to win southwestern Pennsylvania. He was going to be able to win white working-class voters. Well – Iowa and New Hampshire, Max Burns just voted, and he finished fourth or fifth. Didn't even qualify for delegates. Didn't in New even Hampshire. qualify for delegates in New Hampshire, and now he's saying that that he's going to be able to win. Maybe it'll work, but again, for two, I mean, I don't know. Go ahead, Max. Well, there are a lot of signs that the Biden firewall in South Carolina is starting to fade out. He was up thirty six, thirty seven percent there, and now he's down around twenty. And we've seen candidates come up and sort of pick off small chunks of of his base. Uh, And it's challenging for Joe Biden. This shows you the challenge of running a campaign without a message. Because I ask everyone I talk to, what is Joe Biden's campaign message? And no one can explain it. Well, his, yeah, I mean, look, I'm not trying to pick on Joe Biden, but this is, again, for all the folks saying Iowa and New Hampshire don't matter, we wouldn't be talking about Joe Biden's dissents if we didn't have the voters in Iowa and New Hampshire. Coming up on Sound Now, we're talking to Congressman Bruce Westerman, a Republican from Arkansas's 4th Congressional District. He joins us to discuss his Trillion Tree Initiative and how Republicans can attack climate change. I'm Kevin Cirilli. This is Bloomberg 99.1. The countdown has begun. 
This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. I got to give a shout out to Christine Barada and David Sutterman and Matt Tomlin for all of their hard work that our team did uh, up in the Granite State and, of course, in Iowa. And Tomlin was actually with me, I know this seems like a year ago, for the Mike Pompeo interview trip that we did. So we've been really... Uh, burning the uh, candle at both ends. I don't know if I just mixed up that uh, <laughs> that analogy, but uh, but they did great work. Anyway, I'm back in Washington D.C. and I'm thrilled to have uh, the next guest join us on the telephone line, Congressman Bruce Westerman, who's a Republican representing Arkansas's fourth congressional district. And Congressman, uh, first of all, thanks for being here. I want to talk about uh, the One Trillion Tree Initiative, but first I gotta say. Reason I think you're, we're going to have a good interview is because you're a walk-on. You were a walk-on member of the Razorback football team at the University of Arkansas. Yeah, that was a long time ago, but it's uh, it's it's good to be with you. And we could probably tell football stories for a while. <laughs> I, I can say that the guy that played in front of me is going into the NFL Hall of Fame this year, Steve Atwater. So, no uh, way! Wow! Yeah. See, I think that's a great story because I think a lot of times people think that uh, college athletes, they you know they get recruited and it's a whole business. And there's actually the NCAA has been uh, up on Capitol Hill, I think it was this week, for some hear- hearings about oversight over the NCAA and their new rules for, for players. But it's good to know that there are still walk-ons. Like one of my, my favorite sports movie, which isn't Rocky, surprisingly, given my Philadelphia heritage, but it's Rudy. So it's good to know that you're a walk-on. I appreciate that. Hey, there's there's a lot of us that played for the love of the game, and uh, yeah. if you're a walk-on, you you do that and you understand what it's like to uh, uh, to be part of the team, but not be in the limelight much. I feel like I'm a walk-on every day in this industry. Anyway, uh, <laughs> let's talk about your One Trillion Tree initiative. So so the president gave this a shout out in his State of the Union address. You want to plant one trillion with a T. Trees, one trillion trees by the year 2050. Why and how are you going to do it? And how are you going to pay for it? Yeah, we're talking trillion as in national debt kind of trillion. It's not <laughs> not as many as trillions as the national debt, but um, it's it's something that uh, there's a lot of research out there. Uh, actually, there was a research paper out of uh, Zurich that said that if we planted a trillion trees. And uh, they they went into how much land mass that would take and showed that there's the land mass to planet that those trillion trees could remove 205 ton or gigatons of carbon, and that's that's equivalent to two thirds of the man released carbon since the beginning of the industrial revolution. Wow! So there's three trillion trees in the world right now. We've got about 300 billion of them in the United States, and we could step in and do our part. Uh, and lead in this global initiative because trees and plants, you know, they do photosynthesis and they, they're the ultimate carbon-eating machine. But there's a lot more that we can do with trees. 
uh, besides just storing carbon in the forest, because when you cut a tree down and make something out of it, um, that carbon that the that was pulled out of the atmosphere a long time before you ever harvested that tree, that remains in that wood uh, for as long as the wood's there. So there's really an em- endless supply of how much carbon we can take out of the atmosphere and store in the forest or the mechanism to pull it out of the atmosphere. And then by doing sustainable building practices, we can uh, uh, store that carbon indefinitely in the building. And uh, you're seeing people already doing this. You're seeing Walmarts building their new corporate headquarters in Arkansas out of mass timbers. You know, uh, and this we're talking about uh, office facilities for 15,000 people. So this is a a big project and it brings a lot of attention to uh, sustainable building. But uh, you know, we want to we want to plant more trees where we can. We want to make our existing forests more healthy. I, I gotta uh, interrupt we'll be- you. Because yeah. Congressman Bruce Westerman's on the line. He's a Republican from Arkansas. He was the engineer of the year in the state of Arkansas by the Arkansas Society of Professional Engineers in 2013. My dad's an engineer. Uh, and he yeah. is uh, an engineer and a forester by trade. You just said something that I never thought I'd ever hear a Republican say. And I think a lot of our listeners would never expect to hear a Republican say, quote, we want to plant more trees, end quote. So what do you say to folks who are driving in their cars right now and they think, is that a Republican talking about planting more trees? You're, you, you're saying climate change is a problem. It's real. And we got to do something about it. And here's my solution. And here's why it's cost effective. Or am I, mis- am I mishearing you? No, you're, you're listening pretty, pretty astutely there. But you, I am an engineer, undergraduate. I'm a forester in graduate school. Uh, I tell people I've got the worst combination of degrees to serve in Congress because engineers think with logic and reason and foresters look at long-term horizons. But uh, if we want to solve the problem of too much carbon in the atmosphere, which it's 411 parts per million right now, uh, when we started measuring it uh, with with actual uh, atmospheric air in the year we measure it, 1958 in Hawaii, it was at 300 and 15 parts per million, uh, but you can go back with uh, air caught in, in polar ice caps, and you can go back thousands of years, and we know that our carbon levels are high. So how do we solve that problem? And the most pragmatic, proactive approach to that lies in nature with trees. Uh, right. It's the by far the largest carbon-capturing me- mechanism that we have, and it's more efficient and more economical than anything else we have. So it's the... It's not the solution, but it's a great solution, and I'm excited to be working on it. Congressman Bruce Westerman's on the line. He's a Republican who has a climate change plan. He's also an engineer. And I got two more questions for you. You've been so generous with your time, so I'll, I'll keep it quick. Uh, the United Nations has a, has a similar uh, policy that they would like to see enacted. Is this an opportunity for the U.S. to work with the United Nations? So, absolutely. And, you know, President Trump at Davos, he committed us to this global trillion tree initiative in the State of the Union address. He brought back up again planting a trillion trees. So the Trillion Tree Act that I filed today, that's the mechanism as to how we do that. And I'm telling you, there's a lot more that we can do with forestry and sustainability than just planting trees. Matter of fact, if we just plant a lot more trees and we're not good stewards of those trees, we could exasperate the problem and and release more carbon into the atmosphere. But right. when we do sustainable harvest, when we 
restore deforested land to, uh, you know, when we reforest that, uh, we've got a tremendous tool at our disposal uh, to take uh, carbon out of the atmosphere. Congressman, this, I mean, I don't mean to be, I, I'll ask this respectfully, but are, are any, are you running into any problems with any of your Republican colleagues when you tell them about your plan? Uh, now, this is just, it's it's common sense. I mean, we're in Washington, D.C. You're it's always going to have sense, somebody yeah. that will disagree with, with everything. But I think when people have an open mind and they listen to what we're talking about doing, and this is a way we can, uh, it's it's not only good for the environment, it's good for the economy. So uh, it's not a, you know, a gut punch to the economy. It's something that can help the economy to grow. And it's something that, uh, you know, trees are not only the lungs of the earth, as, as Teddy Roosevelt said, but you get benefits with clean water. You get wildlife habitat. You get all the recreation opportunities. There's a tremendous amount of other benefits I, that go along with trees other than uh, clean air. But right now we're focusing on their ability to make the air cleaner. Congressman Bruce Westerman, I hear you loud and clear. And, in fact, it's been one of the things that I think has really been lost in the hunting debate as it's been wrapped into a lot of hunters and fishermen, of, of which I know you are one, uh, have, have been wrapped into the – you know, issue relating to uh, to uh, safer gun laws and, and whatnot. But we there are a lot of environmentalists like yourself who, who are hunters and fishers and fishermen. And, and anyway, I really appreciate your time. I appreciate you coming on to talk about this. It, it's counter-narrative, which is what I really value on this show, is folks who come on and, and tell us about their ideas. So, Congressman, a walk-on from uh, <laughs> walk-on football player, Razorback, I uh, appreciate you coming on. Bruce Westerman, everybody, a Republican from Arkansas. Thank you for that. A trillion trees. Hey, yeah. you know, you got, we'll, we'll go, leave it there. Go hogs. Go, uh, go hogs. And, <laughs> now, uh, listen, go, uh, on this show, we root for on. the Philadelphia Eagles and the Penn State Nittany Lions. But I'll let you go. Coming up on the program, panel reacts to much more policy and politics. Max Burns, as well as Scott Transfer, both of whom were listening to that interview. Download the Bloomberg Sound on podcasts on Apple iTunes or Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find me on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli. On Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Zarilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. It's time now for my favorite part of the program, Quick Take What's on Your Radar. It's where our panelists, our esteemed panelists and guests, give us their quick take of one thing that's on their radar. Max Burns, you've been waiting patiently for us up in New York City at Bloomberg World Headquarters, where you are an esteemed Democratic strategist and a columnist for The Daily Beast, as well as The Independent. What is your quick take that's on your radar? I am waiting to see if a single Senate Republican will stand up and actually call Attorney General Barr to testify about his role in adjusting the sentencing of Roger Stone and also Barr's uh, increased control of all of the legal matters related to Donald Trump, which is stunning. And so far, we've heard almost nothing from from the Senate or from the House. Okay, so to catch everybody up to speed, because we were in New Hampshire world, uh, Chuck Schumer, the top Democrat in the Senate, 
uh, has written a letter to the Department of Justice Inspector General. And in the letter, he writes, quote, I'm calling for an immediate investigation of why Roger Stone's sentencing recommendations by career prosecutors were countermanded. The American people must have confidence that justice in this country is dispensed impartially. The president, for his part, has been tweeting uh, all about this. And President Trump actually congratulated Barr after prosecutors resigned from Roger Stone's case. I'm reading from Axios, Zachary Basu's reporting. The Justice Department submitted a new sentencing recommendation for Roger Stone on Tuesday, overruling career prosecutors who requested in a court filing Monday that the former Trump advisor serve seven to nine years in prison. He only got about half of that. Scott Tranner, what are you hearing? I mean, Max is saying, all right, Republicans should speak out against this. What are Republicans saying? They're ignoring it. It's it's just another it's another thing. You know, the president is the commander in chief. All these people report to him. I understand the independent judiciary side, but Republicans are saying he has the, this prerogative. He used the prerogative. He's certainly talking about it today in tweets and in interviews. Yeah. And uh, let's hear a little bit of the Matt. president when he was ta- asked about it. Here's president of the United States. No, I didn't speak to the just I'd be able to do it if I wanted. I have the absolute right to do it. Uh, I stay out of things. Uh, to a degree that people wouldn't believe, but I didn't speak to him. I thought the recommendation was ridiculous. I thought the whole prosecution was ridiculous. So, I mean, Republicans and, and, and President Trump, they believe that Stone was was wrapped up in this, what they call a witch hunt, and that it should have never gotten that far. And he's really not saying one way or the other if he's going to pardon him. And Democrats are saying this is another example of the president overstepping his boundaries, putting that nicely. I mean, Furthermore, abusing his his power in office, but I, I Max, I don't see this going anywhere, and unfortunately, it probably won't. Which is a sad statement on the values that we are supposed to hold sacrosanct. The idea that the attorney there's a word General, I haven't heard sacrosanct. I feel like I'm back in Catholic prep school. Go ahead. I'm here for you. Uh, it's, it's just the idea that this attorney general is not the attorney general of the United States. <laughs> Still, go ahead. He's the attorney general of Donald Trump. Uh, and we're seeing a system here where the Department of Justice is now in the defense of a single person and that person's friends at the expense of the actual objective rule of law. All right. So that's what's Max Burns' sacrosanct quick take on his radar. I think I was thinking of the word sacristy and not sacristy. Anyway, uh, Scott Tranter, who was looking at me like I have three heads. I'm actually, I don't have, I have one head, but I'm on three hours of sleep. What is your quick take on your radar? Yeah, so I, I'm a big fan of exit polls, and I was looking at it. What what I found most interesting is climate change has been climbing up higher than health care and a yeah. lot of these, these Democratic voters. And if we want to meld it over to what's going on in businesses, we're seeing a lot of insurers start to price in climate change and what it's going to do to property values, floods, hurricanes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. City so, planning. City planning, all these things. And you know what? And Bis- not just big cities. I have to interrupt. Yeah. Not just big cities, but also towns along the coast that are traditionally more conservative. Yeah. I mean, look, businesses, if, if you're a good business, you leave partisanship out of it. And so whether or not you believe in climate change and or its effects, that's a different question. But businesses are starting to price it in as it's rising in voters' minds. Okay, so when do you think we're going to start hearing more about that? Because we just had Congressman Westerman on, who uh, you know has Republican, a Republican. for trees, carbon, yeah. all these things. I think you're going to start hearing it over the next six to nine months, especially in the campaign trail. I think it's look, Republicans and Democrats read the same polling. If it's good polling, it's going to say the same thing. It's going to say that climate change is on everyone's minds. 
combined with the fact that businesses are starting to price it in, whether it's supply chain logistics, whether it's real estate values, whether it's insurance, all these things are going to start to price in. Um, and that affects people whether you believe in it or not. So I think that really who was out ahead on this was Carly Fiorina. Do you, <laughs> no, I'm not even, I mean, but seriously, do you remember that during the Republican primary? I do. When she really forcefully put back, pushed back against Democrats on the issue of climate change, and she embraced, she said, yes, climate change exists, uh, but you can't regulate your way out of climate change. General Secretary Xi Jinping isn't going to want to follow the U.S. lead on climate change. And she, her argument was, you've got to innovate your way out of it. And so, I, I, I mean, as you talk to Republicans, you've got Bruce Westerman saying, plant a trillion, tr a trillion trees and work with the U.N. That's one idea. Uh, but eventually, do you think that you're going to have to hear more about, I don't know, like business incentives to lure companies to adopt more environmentally friendly policies? Yeah, that's a nicer way of saying you got to innovate out of it. Yeah. <laughs> 20, 20 years ago, we did not have gigafactories making batteries. We did not have right. billions of dollars spent by oil companies like Exxon Simpler to do alternative, alternative fuels. I mean, they're running commercials. Exxon is running commercials about how much money it's spending on things not related to oil. Right. And, Max, and, yeah. Max, what did you make of Bruce Westerman saying he wants to plant a trillion trees? I'm all for it. I'm stunned to see Republicans. You're going to be right there rolling up your sleeves and planting the trees. I'm happy to. And I think climate change and, and things like this are going to be a place where we can find some bipartisanship as things like, as as was mentioned, the battery industry and the clean tech industry becomes more financially viable on its own. I mean, that's a great place to support small business. All right. Well, we talked about the environment. We, of course, talked about the New Hampshire primary and... We talked about uh, everything really under the sun with <laughs> the Department of Justice. Sorry. And uh, what, what's on my radar has been the quick take that has been on my radar for at least like two weeks now. And that's the coronavirus. And the U.S. virus experts are now lamenting over China's stonewalling of, uh, after the United States has offered to help. And I'm reading from my colleagues reporting on the Bloomberg Terminal, Michelle Cortez and Josh Wingrove. Josh, of course, one of our all-stars on the White House team here at Bloomberg News. Top U.S. health experts seeking to join an international group heading to the center of the coronavirus outbreak in China said they still have no answer on whether they'll be allowed into the country. U.S. officials have said they've offered for weeks to send frontline disease experts to China to study the outbreak, which originated in the city uh, of in China, and sorry, originated in China, and consult with colleagues there on how to stop it. We haven't been invited yet," said the director of the CDC's National Center for Immunization and Respiratory Diseases, Nancy Messonnier. U.S. officials have repeatedly raised the Chinese non-response, pleading to get access on the ground. Look, I mean, folks, that is a if that isn't a major twist. In this ongoing saga that here you have the best health officials in the world offering Americans, offering to help China. And China's saying, get out. Not even saying get out. They're saying, don't even come. Do not disturb, is what they're saying. Max, that's got to infuriate you. This is all going very well. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> Pre President Trump says this will all be over by April when it warms up. So no one should be worried. Well, I, 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 I mean... We're going to leave it there, but I don't think you can blame Trump for General Secretary Xi not allowing experts into the country. But, you know, coming up or later on in the week, much more fallout from the Department of Justice. Thank you to Max. Thank you to Scott. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. 
And you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. I want to thank Matt Shirley for helping us out today. He was here in studio with me as I rushed back from Manchester. I got to get more chowder. I missed the chowder. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you tomorrow. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.